Hi, Mike Gibson and Paul Ridger coming to you live from ACC 2017. Paul, I have big news for you. 31 years ago, you and I began working together uh, as interns at the Brigham Women's Hospital. My son opened up his envelope yesterday. He's going to be an intern at the Brigham Women's Hospital. We'll be so, thrilled to have him. We'll be thrilled know, to have him. Poor guy, I don't know what he's in for. <laughs> but uh, boy, this has been an exciting meeting, Paul. Um, you know, I think they shouldn't call it ACC 17. They should just call it PCSK 917. A lot of hot data from Fourier, your trial, Spire, and Orion. People know the data. I think they want to hear how this data is being digested. What are some of the take-home messages for this class and individual drugs from this meeting? Right. So I was very careful in my presentation to make sure that people said, look, the issues that bocasizumab has as a humanized monoclonal human, antibody not human, but humanized. are clearly different than evolacumab and alaracumab as fully human monoclonal antibodies. And I must say, uh, even though there's only 3% murine sequence that's been retained, that retention looks to be sitting right in the hypervariable complementarity region of the antibody, which is where PCSK9 binds. Mm -hmm. So that's why all this happened. So the quick mm -hmm. lessons are A, yeah, we had an antibody response to mm -hmm. the drug uh, that was quite common, mm -hmm. almost half. Mm -hmm. Now, the truth is, of that half, vast majority were fine. There's, yeah. no, there's no side effects to this. And uh, about one in 20 patients, though, uh, had a very high antibody response. And by 52 weeks, there was really no LDL reduction at all for that group. So this became a blocking antibody. It blocked the effectiveness of the drug. That's right. In fact, yeah. we, in, in the New England Journal paper, we actually have a graph of bo plasma bocasizumab levels just dropping in the people with these very high antibodies. Hmm. So, okay, so for some small group of people, the drug wasn't going to be very effective. Right. The second nuanced piece was these waterfall plots that, that we've been sure. talking about for sure. some time. The waterfall plot I showed were people who did not have the antibody and were compliant with the drug. Mm -hmm. And what it showed is that while the average LDL reduction with PCS9 inhibitors looks to be 55, 60%, which is terrific, some people are getting 80, 85, 90%, even more terrific. Sure. But there are others getting only 10, 15% reductions. And of course, since cost is part of this issue at this meeting, yeah. I think we'll have to figure out how much LDL reduction is my patient going to get my from patient. this drug and how my am patient. I going to pay for that. You know, Paul, you, you were, and I was very proud of you, you were one of the very vocal people who came out against getting rid of the thresholds. I think the thresholds will come back to the guidelines, don't you? Oh, I think they're already they're back, back in. If you look at the 2015 yes. version, I think they were softening the blow, saying mm -hmm. we should measure it for compliance, mm -hmm. obviously. And I think today I even heard several guideline folks say, look, we're going to have to measure it for treatment effect. Yes. Yeah. And you know what? I was very surprised by the variance in people in their response. Obviously, when you develop an antibody, you're going to see variance. And despite developing an antibody, you still hit a pretty good event reduction, 20%. Right. But uh, were you somewhat surprised by the variability in the uh, Fourier data? With the number of people who fell below kind of the target? So um, I'm actually not. I, I think that with statin drugs, we see the same variability. And of course, we as physicians, see patients with tremendously different responses who are compliant with their drugs, and that's just called pharmacology. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we should be surprised by that, but we have to incorporate it into how we practice. Mm -hmm. If a drug is very inexpensive and highly effective, statins, we can give them to lots of people and not have to worry about it. Mm -hmm. But when cost is an issue, I think we have to make sure that we're giving it to our highest risk patients who truly need more LDL reduction 
and we have to make sure that the patient who you give it to actually gets the LDL reduction. Right. If they're not, I think an argument to pay for the drug is a pretty tough argument. Right. Now, <clears throat> there, there is another drug, not an antibody, but an, uh, you know, an RNA uh, inhibitor, and that drug, uh, the medicines companies moving this forward, did have a little better waterfall, right? I mean, more people tended to respond to that drug. Right, so the siRNA uh, technology is, is different in the sense that you're talking about intrahepatic translation of the message, and would that be different than uh, surface absorption? So it's a very mm -hmm. interesting idea. And of course, the preliminary data that we saw that was just published from uh, Cal Ray and the group uh, is promising. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, that waterfall plot is, is tighter, tighter than we've seen. Right. There's still variability. Uh, I, I'm of the general belief that you should use that information to design your trial. Uh, I, would, I would focus on the people who get the large reductions right. because, of course, that's going to drive your NNT, it's going to drive your efficacy down the road, uh, and we'll see how that plays out. I think the real issue is... Uh, Would it be fair to do a run-in phase of these studies? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've, I've favored for quite a long time. You could have an active run-in mm -hmm. if you dial this back. Mm -hmm. If you went back to the original PCSK9 designs, one of the things we had advocated aggressively, it didn't happen, right. was to have an active run-in. Right. If your LDL dropped by more than, say, 50%, mm -hmm. randomize that group and let the other people go. Mm -hmm. If they had done that, right. A, the sample size of the trial would have been... 10,000 instead of 25,000. Correct. The relative risk reduction and the absolute risk reduction would have been larger, and sure. the tenor of the meeting would have been much different. Of course. So I think that's a very viable, it's the idea of targeting We your can't drugs go backwards, but moving do. forwards, that's you a can. recommendation I'm giving people yep. as a run-in phase. Um, I, I agree. think going longer is a recommendation, right? Uh, another obvious recommendation is identifying high-risk patients. That's a little tougher. You know, these were pretty high-risk people in these trials. Right. But I think personally moving uh, the entry closer to, say, an ACS event, where you have a higher event rate during that period. Uh, but, and I think the endpoint is critical. Um, I think sticking with cardiovascular death and my stroke is, is going to be the way to go. Revask and, and rehospitalization since the 90s has not worked really for anybody as an endpoint. I think we should move beyond that. What other recommendations do you have? We're moving forward. Well, I think I think the cardiovascular death piece is very complicated. At face value, both the Fourier data and our data do not have a reduction in all-cause mortality and in cardiovascular mortality. Now, I personally don't think that's a big deal. You get a huge reduction in non-fatal events, it's going to play out over time, and trials can't be designed to only go after mortality and ignore all the events along the way. But do we really think that a certain pathophysiologic process is going to get rid of heart failure mortality mm -hmm. when it's an atherosclerotic issue? Mm -hmm. So I think we need to be more, more sophisticated. Maybe we need to figure out a way to work with the FDA to have an endpoint that reflects what the biology of the drug does, mm -hmm. at least as a secondary endpoint, and say cardiovascular deaths attributable to, say, thrombosis as compared to uh, a cardiovascular death attributable to heart failure, in which case I wouldn't anticipate a reduction. Um, but the big picture at this meeting really has been, uh, I think no one can walk away from this meeting saying lower isn't better for longer. That's mm -hmm. now, I think, rock solid. Of lower course, is better, longer is better. I think we, right. we add to the lower is better paradigm that's right. by saying so lower longer is better, is better for longer. Is right. what we've been, is that, that's what I said from the podium when I showed right. our data about the longer risk, longer exposure, mm -hmm. got the larger risk reductions. And of course, what that really means right now is high-dose statins with great compliance. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, on top of that, 
right. where do we go with these new drugs? Right. The other thing I thought was interesting, Paul, is that on a millimole per millimole basis, the biology is fascinating. I mean, this is a statin and a PCSK9 give you the same slope. I mean, uh, in a statin's pennies, this is much more. Right, so there was a lot of misunderstanding about that this meeting. Uh, so again, remember the Oxford meta-analyses have been pretty clear that in the first year, there's only about a 9% reduction per millimole reduction LDL, 9% mm -hmm. reduction events per millimole, and that at years two through six is when we get that 20 to 25% reduction. So consider Spire. Mm -hmm. We only had a one-year trial. Mm -hmm. If I take Spire 1 and Spire 2 and combine them together, take all comers, uh, we got a 1.4 millimole per liter reduction. So 1.4 times 9%, 13%. It's exactly what we got. Mm -hmm. Exactly what we got. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a consistency here in terms of that. Now, an optimist might say, well, in Spire 2, uh, we had a 21% reduction, and that's focusing on higher risk, higher LDL. Uh, but clinically, I think it's good news. Why do you think you saw that gradient in Spire 1, Spire 2 in terms of baseline LDL and efficacy, whereas in Fourier, it didn't seem to be there? Right. So some of that could just be power. Uh -huh. So let's, let's, let's be clear. Spire 1 and Spire 2, because the sponsors stopped the trials because of the antibody issue, mm -hmm. we have relatively small numbers compared to them. Uh, okay. So we, in Spire 1, we have 173 on placebo and 173 exactly on bovacizumab they have uh, five or six hundred events in that same strata. So okay. some of this could be chance. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd like to believe that biologically, that uh, they saw a risk reduction there, uh, but their numbers are much larger. Let's talk price. Um, I did a little simple math. You have to treat 66 people uh, at the street price, retail value. That's not the ultimate price, probably. You'd have to spend $28,000 per patient. You're talking about $1.8 million over two years to prevent an event. Uh, what do you think, the, how do you think the market is going to accommodate the pricing of these agents? And there's obviously going to be some downward pressure. We're seeing some people saying, well, we'll reimburse you if you get hospitalized. Where do you see all that going? Well, I'm, I have no expertise whatsoever in healthcare economics. Uh, uh, I, I assume that the market will do what it does and uh, there'll be negotiation that goes on and there'll be a response to this. I, I think two, two responses to that, though. I think our job as clinicians is to figure out who do you actually want to give them to. Right. So and who would be that person? Right. To and, I, and I think this is yeah. tricky because right now, at least up until now, it's really been an FH issue, more or less. But in fact, I have FH patients who are at very high risk and FH patients whose, frankly, risk is not that high. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's the phenotypic expression of the gene is not so straightforward. On the other hand, in my clinic, as in yours, uh, that, that, that patient who's had multiple MIs, mm -hmm. an MI in a stroke, an MI in another angioplasty, and another angioplasty, another cabbage, we all have patients who seem to progress aggressively, and 10% of our patients take 80% of our time. Right. To me, I know who they are in my clinic, they're at higher risk than my FH patients. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to see them get this class of drugs. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not by any means my whole clinic, but it's a sure. fraction that I think we have to reduce the barriers and figure out a way to get them treated. Now, that being said, I, I must say, I, I, I did not think this proposal that I heard about in the news today about reimbursing the payer when the patient had an event, it seems a bit heartless to me. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, it seems to me from a company perspective, we should focus on patient outcomes and the benefit for them. The idea that you're gonna reimburse the payer because the patient had an event strikes me as uh, not what I as a physician wanna do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
fascinating intersection of uh, physicians and economics and uh, patients and everything. Any final thoughts on the class and the meeting? I just want to say congratulations, Dad, for your son coming to Brigham. He's going to be, I remember Mike time. Gibson notes from internship. Yes, thank you. And I can see some new Gibson notes yes, coming through the system. Exactly. Well, take care of him. Don't be too mean to him. <laughs> and uh, thanks to all of you for joining us here live uh, from ACC 2017.